Well, as you find your seats, I'd ask you to take God's Word into your hands and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I would uh, just remind you, uh, we are low in attendance uh, this week. We've got two different retreats going on. We have the men's retreat where we've got a couple dozen of our guys uh, up in uh, Silver Birch Ranch in northern Wisconsin and uh, be in prayer uh, for them. Uh, They'll be heading back uh, at some point here uh, today to get back to their families. And then we have our young adult ministries, uh, the river, on a retreat as well. And so uh, uh, just be in prayer for them as they head back as well. Uh, I'm uh, here kind of guarding the fort from a staff standpoint. All the other guys are gone, so please don't inundate me with your problems. Call Keith on Monday or Tuesday. But... uh, But uh, be in prayer for all of them. We recognize that church doesn't just happen when we're here, but uh, as we gather together in other uh, places uh, at these retreats, God is doing some great and marvelous things uh, as he continues to grow us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Well, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2. We're in a series that we've entitled One Month to Live. It's a different kind of series than we uh, normally uh, find ourselves in. Uh, We're focusing in on on a specific question and then looking at the life of Jesus and asking how we can understand Jesus' life and how he lived his life um, and then in turn to imitate his life and to follow him. The question we've been asking uh, for these last couple weeks, and we'll ask for a couple more, is how would my life be different if I knew that I had one month to live? What would change when it comes to my priorities, the way I spend money, my relationships, my time, my efforts, my uh, ministry? What are the things that would radically change? What things would remain the same? The premise of this whole series is looking at the life of Jesus, knowing Jesus only had a certain amount of time here on earth. He knew Uh, when he had one month to live. He knew when he had only a couple weeks to live. And he lived life to the fullest as an example for us so that we would not fall prey to to all of the temptations in this world and what can fill our time and take up our energy, but that we would live for Christ and live just as Christ did. And we've seen how Jesus lived passionately. We've talked about last week how Jesus loved completely and how we are to do the same. And today we speak on the subject of how Jesus learned humbleness. And we're going to learn uh, a little bit more on how we ought to live as a result of what we see uh, with Christ. Now this week is the glue that holds it all together. It's one thing to talk about how we ought to uh, live full lives and passionate lives for Christ in our ministry to those around us. It's another thing to also to uh, talk about loving people better and, uh, and spending more time showing our love and the full extent of our love to those around us. It's easy as a pastor to, to preach those things because those are things that we understand and we know. We should spend more time with our family and friends. We should do things that uh, have eternal results. But what's going to get us there? What's going to cause us each and every morning after this series is long gone to follow Christ, to pursue Christ, to live and making the most of every opportunity because of the days are evil. What is going to cause us to do that? Our text today is going to teach us what it means to live humble lives that are obedient. I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look at this great passage of scripture 
This is what Paul tells the church at Philippi. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we come to an amazing passage of Scripture filled with truth about who you are. And Lord, so many times we find ourselves focused in on the deep theological truths of this passage that we many times miss out on what we'll talk about today, the practical application of this. Lord, we're going to hit on many truths about who you are and what you have done But Lord, I pray that we would remember that first verse in the middle of the passage where it says our attitude should be just like Jesus's. Lord, I pray that humility and obedience would be not only our attitudes, but it would be the way we live. Father, I pray because this is not something easy for us to hear We are people that are self-centered. We are people that are focused in on our desires and wants. Lord, we're worried about our renown and our fame. And so, Lord, humility faces us right, hits us right between the eyes and slaps us right in the face. And, and Lord, we recognize that. And so open our hearts to, some, to this truth that is difficult for many of us to understand, to live out, and to apply in our lives. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would use my words uh, to help transform the lives of those around us. Lord, I pray that it would transform me, that I would live differently as a result of what I have seen and heard through this study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I want us to focus in on what it means to learn humbly. For us to be successful in life, for us to be successful in the Christian life, Humility must be a part of everything that we do. And obedience must become second nature to our walks with Christ. And so as we look to this study, we look to no one else other than Jesus Christ as our example. Now, how could Jesus have learned humbly? First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus does not learn things. God does not have an absence of understanding or knowledge that he needs to go to school and, and learn uh, something about something that's lacking in his life. But what we're going to learn today is that Jesus chose 
to learn humility. He chose to learn it because he didn't have to be humble. As God, he didn't have to do that, but he did for you and I. And it's an example for us because we must choose humility. We have to have humility in our lives or we will fail to live as if we have one month to live because it will again focus in on who we are. My boys love the movie Cars. If you've got children in your home or grandchildren, no doubt you have seen this movie, uh, this cartoon about a race car that is at the top of his game. He is the best and fastest new rookie. His name is Lightning McQueen, and he has just taken the whole world by storm. People love Lightning McQueen. And we hear of the story that he's at the pinnacle of pride and he's welling up with all kinds of arrogance. He's the best race car around. He needs no friends. He needs no uh, help uh, to take care of the issues that will concern him on the racetrack. And so right at the pinnacle of this, he has to head out to California for a last uh, race that will uh, then tell who's going to be champion. And through a course of events, he finds himself uh, lost uh, all by himself uh, looking for his friends. And he finds himself in a, if you will, backwoods community called Radiator Springs. It's in Radiator Springs where an aura of superiority comes over lightning. He's had it, but it really starts coming out. And he knows that he's better than these people from this community. And he wants to show them how much better he is. He's a star. He has had all these great trophies. And through the course of time, the residents of Radiator Springs show them that he's just like the rest of them. And that he can learn great things from those people that he didn't think much of. He learned humility. He learned humility, and because of that, he gained friends. Because of that, he gained community. Because of that, he was able to understand what it means to love completely, what it truly means to live passionately. Within that story of Lightning McQueen, it isn't no longer the championship that it's all about, but it's about putting others first. Now, I could keep preaching about a a movie that I've seen with my children, and it would pale in comparison to the story that we have before us, to the text that is before us, because we see God, Jesus Christ, who never had to be humble, but chose to be humble because he thought higher of us than he did his own well-being. And because of that, if Jesus did that, And if Jesus lived out that example, then we should live it out as well. Now, this isn't a flashy message. I've got no hammers and none of that stuff from last week. This is just what I would call just real true obedience. And it's no fun. When was the last time you told your children to go clean their room? And they said, of course, I love you. Thank you for letting me have this opportunity to do that. Obedience is never easy. It's hard. And it takes a lot of hard work to be obedient. But we're going to see that the attitude that we need to have starts with this idea of humility. So let's look at our first point this morning. The first thing that we need to understand is that we need to understand we need a different attitude. It starts with our attitude. Write that in your outlines this morning. It begins with our attitude. Notice what the text says in verse 5. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You know, we can hide our attitudes uh, from a lot of people. 
we can smile and say everything is going great and everything is wonderful and, uh, and we can live that way for a while, but God knows our attitude and God knows our heart. And what he's saying is, is if your attitude isn't right, then pretty soon you're going to have actions that aren't right. And so our attitude needs to be different. Now notice what he says about our attitude. He says that our attitude needs to be that of Christ Jesus. Well, what does that look like? Go back a couple verses, because I want you to understand what we see. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now Paul says that is the attitude that Christ had, and our attitude should be like that. Now he says, after verse 5, I'm going to explain how Christ did that. He lived a life of humility, and I'm going to show you. But we need to understand some things about humility. First of all, what is humility? We don't see it a lot these days. It's a virtue that is rare in our world today. Uh, in fact, we, we rarely see it uh, in, in the lives of, of many people because we're so focused in on self. But humility is a virtue that every believer needs to have. It must be lived out, and that means we must know what it means. So let's define it. Humility has been defined as the following. It is defined as accepting ourselves as we really are before God. Accepting ourselves as we really are before God. If you want to have a study on humility, there's a great book by a man named C.J. Mahaney called Humility. And it's a wonderful study. If you want to have your pride take a, a good beating, a godly beating, it's a great book to read. Again, C.J. Mahaney, the book Humility. And in it, uh, he quotes a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. And he says this about humility, that which we're going to understand from Jesus today. It is not denying the power you have. That's not humility, denying the power you have, but admitting that the power comes through you and not from you. Let me read that again. Jerry Bridges says that humility is not denying the power you have, but admitting that the power comes through you and it's not from you. We need to recognize as we serve, as we use our gifts, people are going to come and say, man, you you did a great job. You did a wonderful job. And it's not to deny it saying, hey, uh, whoever just told you that, hey, you're wrong. It wasn't a great job. It was a terrible job. You don't say that. You, you, You receive that, but then you say, it's all because of God. God is the one that gave me the gift. God is the one that gave me the wherewithal to be able to do that, that certain thing. And, and not to deny what God is doing in your life, but never to receive it as being you being the source of that. And so how are we to do this? How are we to show this kind of humility? Paul gives us a couple attributes of what humility looks like. It's some action points. First of all, it involves resisting selfishness. Humility resists selfishness. He uses a phrase here. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The idea here is do not live for self-promotion. Now, some of us aren't as brazen in the idea that it's all about us, but we live life that promotes self. It's about our needs. It's about getting uh, the money that we need to live life. And we go from one week to another week and and so on and so forth, going through life trying to promote the well-being of self that we forget about the well-being of others. 
And so this selfishness is at the root of every sin, if you really think about it. The reason why we lie, the reason why we cheat, the reason why we lust and and are jealous and, and, and angry is because at the very root of it, if you will, we're selfish. And we want it to go our ways. And we want things on our time frame and in our ways. And so as a result of that, humility will never be found. If you're living this life, you will never find the humility that God has called you to. I love what John says in 3 John verses 9 and 10. He's speaking to a church in this one very short chapter of, of the whole book of first, or Third John, and he says the following. He says that there's a guy named Diatrophus in the church, and he says he loves to be first. If you struggle with being first, then you struggle with selfishness. My needs, my wants, my desires, in my time, and in my way. I have to have it this way for me to be happy. That's selfishness. And that's not the way Jesus has called us to live. Notice the second thing that he tells us to do. He says, resist selfishness. But then he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We need to regard others as more important. Now notice what that doesn't mean. Paul doesn't say just look to other people's needs. He says, when we're looking at our lives, he says, you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that means that as I'm focused in on the life that I'm living, that I'm not doing it with um, blinders on, but I'm looking at how my pursuit of interests and my pursuit of the interests in my life are impacting the lives of those around me. Are they having a positive effect? Are they having a negative effect? As I pursue the life that I'm wanting to live, am I having to crawl over and walk over people to get there? Or as I pursue my life, other people are being blessed and they're being nurtured and they're growing as a result of it. You want to understand if you live a selfish life or not. My father always used to say, look back at the wake that you are creating. He says, you're like a powerboat. And ask the question, what's in your wake? If you see a bunch of people that you've had to go over to get there, then there's selfishness in your life, whether you see it or not. Are people with you? Are people encouraging you and, and, and uh, excited about where you're going? Or do you see people that are, again, in the wake of your, your boat as a result of the uh, carelessness and selfishness that you've lived up to this point? This isn't Jesus. Jesus doesn't live this way. Now notice the next thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring us back to Jesus here, but let's just get some practical understanding here. We need to regard others as more important. What that means is, is literally this term in, in uh, the Greek was a mathematical term. That means I've added it up, and you're greater than I am. Your needs are more important than mine are. Uh, we're learning with Noah the, the alligator mouths, if you will, greater and less than. You remember those in, uh, in uh, school? Uh, seven is greater than six, and four is less than five. Easy things to recognize. What Paul is wanting us to do is to look at our lives and say we are less than others. They're more important. The final thing that he wants us to look at is we need to remember the needs of others. We need to look to the needs of others. He says, don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do we do that? We remember the needs. If we don't see them, then the question is, is not that there aren't needs out there, but we're not looking. And many times we are so busy in our lives focusing in on selfish needs, 
regarding ourselves as being more important and remembering our own issues and needs that we never get to the needs of others. Now let's bring Jesus into this. Jesus is God. You know that. I know that. And Jesus, when, when he was sitting up in heaven with his Father and the Holy Spirit, they were receiving all praise and all glory. Everything that ever, they ever wanted done was created into existence and was done just as they wanted it to be. A life of perfection. But Jesus made a decision. Jesus, because he saw our need, because he saw sin and the broken relationship that it had with him and, of course, the rest of the Trinity, Jesus said, it isn't about me. Someone's need is more important than my well-being up here in heaven, and I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to redeem a people unto myself. I want you to understand something. The last person who ever had to show humility was Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus could spend all of eternity saying, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Keep singing, keep praising me, keep worshiping me, keep giving me, keep giving me, keep giving me. He is the only one technically that can be proud. He deserves it. He's the only one that it's all about him. But what does Jesus do? He says, even though I have the right for it to be all about me, I'm going to make it about you. Now here's the great irony. We're not God. We're finite, broken creatures. And what do we say? It's all about us. Praise me, praise me, praise me, take care of me, minister to me, feed me, all of these things. And that's the very thing we shouldn't be doing. And the very thing that we should be doing is what Jesus showed us. And that is to come to conclusion of who we are. We are people who are sinners in need of saving, who we have wronged a God, and as a result of that, he came and redeemed us and sent his son Jesus to die for us, who regarded us as more important than himself, and our job now is to respond in love to those around us. But we don't do that. When was the last time you stopped and asked the question, how can I serve those around me? How can I meet the needs of those around me? Or is it always going from this meeting to the next, this appointment to the next one, this activity, whatever it is? Because we're promoting self and our attitude, whether we like it or not, is all about what we have to accomplish and what we have to do. I love what John the Baptist said in looking at his life. When he spoke of Jesus, he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's humility in a sentence. God needs to be big. I need to be small. And that's a life that ministers to others, a life that understands our true calling. So what does that look like? What does that kind of attitude look like? It begins with our thoughts. How can we change our attitude in regards to it? I love what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says. It says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You will never be able to be humble without the Spirit of God actively involved in your life. And so you have to ask the Spirit to transform my thinking. Lord, I don't want to think about self, but that's all that I seem to tend to go towards, and I need to be changed. I want to be like Jesus, who left everything in heaven and all that it affords 
to come and to die for me. I want to live like that for him and for the others in the world around me. And it means remembering the needs, regarding others as more important, and resisting that selfishness. It begins by confessing our selfishness to God and turning and living differently because of Christ. Notice number two. It's an attitude and it's also an action. It's an action. Humility will produce something. Once we understand humility and start living humble lives, then it will create obedience. Write down next to your attitude that word humility, and then next to the word activity, write down the word obedience. You will never truly be diligent in your obedience until you're humble. Until you're humble. You'll never obey anybody, whether it's your parents or, or your boss or, or God for that matter, until you humble yourself and submit to him. And Jesus, again, is this great example, this perfect example of how he does it. Now notice what verse 6 through 11 says. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't just think. He didn't just have this attitude that I need to think better of others than I do. He didn't have to say, well, uh, I, uh, I need to think like they do and sympathize with them. No, it says that he made himself a man. He became a man, he put skin on, he put flesh on, if you will, and he experienced everything that you and I did. And in doing so, he shows us a couple things. Number one, he shows us that obedience means understanding where the buck stops. Understanding where the buck stops. Notice what he says. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word there uh, that he did not uh, have to grasp onto the glory of God literally means that he did not have to defend or hold on to it. He was able to let it go. Have you ever stopped to wonder what it must have been like for Jesus to leave the holiness of heaven and come and experience the woes of this world? He had been surrounded by unimaginable beauty, unimaginable praise, so that he could come to Bethlehem and be born next to donkeys, sheep, horses, and and cows, and all of that, by putting on flesh, he did exactly what the Father willed. Now we are called to do the same thing. He could have said, I'm God. God doesn't do those types of things, but he didn't. He said, Father, if that is your will, I will do it. He understood the will of his Father in heaven, and he did it. And all throughout his life here on earth, he would stop and ask the question. He would say, not my will, God, but your will be done. It's going to affect how I live. Yes, I understand, but I want to obey you. I want to do as you say. He understood his rank. He understood that as as the God-man, that he was coming uh, to be God's representative for mankind. And he obeyed it even when it hurt, even when it created trials and tribulation in his life. He obeyed the will of his Father in heaven. And some of us need to understand as we humble ourselves that humility then goes and says, God, you're in charge. 
you're the one who's in charge. You're the one whose will is most important. That's why we pray, God, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we want God's will to be done in our lives. Even though that may change how we do things, it may change our schedule. We want to do what God's will is. We want to believe and live out that God is where everything begins and ends. Number two, it involves living like a servant. Jesus went from total sovereignty to being a servant. It says he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The Greek literally means that he emptied himself. Now, I want us to be, understand this very, very important that we understand this. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus was always God. He always was God, whether in the flesh or up in heaven. He was always and will always be God. But what Jesus emptied and what made him a servant is that he set aside his God prerogatives and lived like you and I. What that means is, is that he said, you know what, I will live just like Tim Badal has to live. I will sleep just like he does. I will have to eat. I will have to live. I will have to work. I'll have to experience pain and suffering. I'll have to do all those things just like the rest of us have to. And in experiencing that, he became a servant. He now had to serve in a way that he never would have had to have served up in heaven. So he doesn't abandon his deity, but he shows us how in submitting to the Father, how we ought to. And there's a couple ways we do this. Number one, write this somewhere in your outlines. He willingly gave up his glory. He willingly gave up his glory. I don't know if you've ever followed this before, but later in Jesus' ministry, shortly after, or before he died, Jesus asks the Father to give him the glory back. In John 17, 5, listen to what this verse says. And now, Father, forgive me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What Jesus says is, hey, here on earth, I didn't receive the glory and the praise that I had in heaven. Here on earth, I didn't get the accolades that I got. Because people didn't recognize me as God. They did not honor me as God. And so as a result of that, he becomes a servant and says, I'm going to set aside some of my glory. People are not going to not only not love me, but they're going to hate me. And as a result of that, I need to have humbled myself. And he asked the Father at the end of his life, give me that glory back so that I may be glorified just as you are glorified. Number two, he gave up his honor. The majesty of heaven allowed himself to be mistreated. He was hated and mocked. He was spat upon. In fact, Isaiah prophesies about Jesus when it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I was asked a couple weeks ago to, uh, to paint my neighbor's house. She's an elderly woman. And uh, she has sons that uh, um, were out of work and now all of a sudden are both in work and unable to help her with it. And, and I said, of course, I'll be happy to help you do it. And, uh, and you say, good job, Tim. That, that's a good thing to do, paint your neighbor's house. Well, as I was painting the house, my honor was, was taken away from me. I'm painting and 
one of my other neighbors drives by, and out of the car he yells, and it's kind of, you know, if he was right, he would have really felt bad, but it wasn't the case, and it's not about my neighbor, it's more about me. He says, hey, catering must be really bad if you've got to paint a house to make a living. Uh, like I said, if, he, if it was true, then that would be the issue. But you know what I said? I, wanted, I didn't say, but I wanted to say, hey, I don't have to do this to make a living. Don't, hey, don't, don't think that. I got a good job and everything's going fine there. You don't have to worry about that. Don't think that because I'm painting a house, I've got some problem with my finances or something. And I'm sitting there getting angry because I don't want any of my other neighbors to drive by and wonder why one neighbor's painting another neighbor's house. And yet what I read about Jesus is he didn't care about his honor. He says, I'm God. And you're going to spit on me. You're going to abuse me. You're going to yell at me. You're going to mock me. And Jesus never says, hey, in my former life, I was a bigwig. In my former life, man, I ran this whole show. You just don't know it. Like a lamb, silent before the slaughter, Jesus went to the cross. And we're so busy wanting to defend our honor. I'm an important guy. I'm important. I've got an important job. I've got an important business. Whatever it is, we want to hold on to our honor. And and what, what God says in his word is that Jesus let it go. Jesus says the only person that it matters to is God. Oh, we try to pump ourselves up and make sure we look all put together. And some of us, you know, go around trying to show the world something we're not. And Jesus humbles himself and says, you know what? The only person that it matters to is God. Finally, he rejected his riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Some of us need to look at our lives and ask the question, is it costing us anything? Humility will cost us something. It costs Jesus the riches of heaven. It cost him his glory. It cost him his honor. It cost him his life. And some of us say, well, yes, I'm a humble individual. Yes, I'm regarding others as more important than myself. And it's not costing you anything. Humility always costs us because it means we live like a servant. Serving others. Ministering to others. When was the last time we rejected some of our own riches? And I don't just mean financially, but the blessings God has given us to serve others, to love on others, to pursue others. Sadly, in my own life, again, I'm so busy taking care of Tim's life that I'm not focused in on the life of others. Jesus wasn't this way. Jesus gave up the life that was all focused in on him, and rightly so, to take care of us, to minister to us. Jesus describes himself in this way in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven: I am among you as one who serves. In another passage, he says, I came to serve, not to be served. We need to be like Jesus. Finally, the next one we have is submission. In verse 8, as God, empties, or as, as God, Jesus empties himself, and it says he humbled himself, being found in the appearance as a man. What Jesus does here is he steps down. He voluntarily submits himself to all of the issues we have as human beings, and it allows him to be tempted. 
The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 that in every way Jesus was tempted just as we are. Why would God be tempted? Have you ever thought about that? Why would God, why would Jesus have been tempted? Because he was just like you and I. And in every way hungry, in every way thirsty, in every way having the same yearnings and desires and the same want for love and affection as we do. Just, he was 100% God, but just as he was 100% God, he was just like you and me. And he yearned for those things. And he yearned to take care of those things on his time clock and in his ways. But it's, Scripture says he did it without sin. That's the difference between you and I and Jesus Christ. So he submitted himself again to the will of the Father, and it meant something, and that is sacrifice. Look at what he's obedient to, even to death on a cross. In his final step down, we see that Jesus Christ, the reason why he came to earth, he was born to die. His death was no accident. He came on purpose to take our place. The last part of Philippians 2.8 says he humbled himself and became obedient. And it says even death on a cross. The death on the cross was brutal. It was barbaric. It was not even to be talked about in polite Roman circles. That's how bad the cross was. Ancient writers said that when you died on the cross, you died a thousand deaths because every breath you took seemed like your last. What was Jesus obedient to? To die the worst death that we could die. And he knew it. He knew that was where he was going. And so what does he do? He never strayed from being obedient because he humbled himself. Now, why is this all that important? What, what makes this the glue of it in this series? You will never live a no-regret life. You will never live a life that makes the most of opportunities unless you humble yourself and recognize that there is a God and you and I aren't him. Once we recognize that, that then we say, God, we're not you and your will is right and my will is not and so I submit myself to your will. I humble myself under you so that I may obey all that you have commanded us us to do, all that you've commanded me to live out. And the reason why is because there are going to be situations throughout this time and after this series is long gone where you're going to feel like giving up, where you're going to feel like giving in. And there are going to be things that are going to cause you to doubt whether or not this kind of life is a life you need to have. And this is where obedience comes in. This is where humility says, I don't understand it, God, but I'm going to believe and honor you. And where does it find itself? It finds itself in all arenas of life. Write that final one there. It's the arena. Where do we see this lived out? Humility and, humility and obedience are lived out, and just so you know this, in all facets of life. But we look at Jesus' life, we look at how he humbled himself, and how he relied on the Father and was obedient. And we see a couple things. As we look at the temptations of Jesus Christ, we see that temptations teach us obedience. Jesus goes to the de desert in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus is led there by the Spirit. And he's tempted by the devil. And the scripture tells us that three times he is tempted. Humility teaches us that we are all going to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to have uh, temptations come before us. 
It is to give in to those, which is sin, of course. But Jesus shows us a couple things that we need to understand. First of all, that man does not live by bread alone. What that means is it's not just about our physical well-being. Temptation should teach us that obedience isn't about us and our needs, but it is about relying on God himself. He says, but only on the word that comes from the Lord. Jesus says, hey, it's about you and your word, Father. It's about following your ways, not mine. Even though my body cries out for sustenance, I'm going to rely on you. Some of us are struggling with temptations, and we don't understand why. And we say, well, I just wish I could get rid of this temptation. Temptations force us to obey God and rely on him. To obey and rely on him. I love what he says at verse 10 of Matthew 4. He says that we are to worship the Lord God and serve him alone. So when temptations come, it's causing you to say, I serve my God in heaven. I don't serve self. I don't serve that desire, that want. Temptations teach us that. Number two, troubles teach us to trust. Jesus says numerous times, not my will, but your will be done. It's not about me, Father, but it's about your will and your glory. Humility and obedience say, if this is the path that God has for me, so be it. Some of us are struggling with bad medical reports. Some of us are struggling with with, uh, pink slips and, and unemployment. And we can get angry with God and we can get upset with God. Or we can say, Lord, you've allowed this trouble so that I will trust in you in the difficult times. That I will focus my attention on you. Humility says that I'm not above trouble. If Jesus had troubles, why would I think I don't have troubles? Obedience says I will honor you, Father, in the troubles. Whether you give or whether you take away, as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. A heart that is humble and obedient recognizes that troubles are light and momentary compared to the great things that are coming in glory for us. Next, we see that trespasses teach us to forgive. Jesus numerous times forgave people that didn't deserve it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the Lord's Prayer, it teaches us to pray, uh, asking for our forgiveness of our debts as we forgive those who have debts uh, with us. We need to forgive. Humility and obedience reminds us of some things. Humility reminds us that we're sinners And we're indebted to God because of our sin. Obedience says that in light of the humility that I have, knowing who I am in Christ, that I will forgive others. Some of us have trespasses against us. And we're unwilling to, uh, we've been trespassed against and we are unwilling to forgive. We're unwilling to forgive and release people of it. In doing so, Jesus says that when we don't do those things, bitterness and anger will come. And as a result of those things, we will become uh, more angry and bitter. And in, in, in those responses, we will sin. We need to release it. And finally, triumphs teach us to give God the glory. I love how Paul ends this passage. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice what the last phrase is there. To the glory of God the Father. Whether life is good or whether life is bad, 
We give all things to the glory of our God in heaven. We praise him. We worship him. He gives us good things. We say, it is by the grace of God that I have these things. When people say, you're great at this or you're great at that, God, it is because of God who makes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. My brothers and sisters, it's about humility and obedience. You want to start living like there's one month to live? Start humbling yourself and seeking the face of God. And when God says, here's an opportunity, obey it. Let me close our time with a word of prayer and then we will come around the table. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the example that Christ gives. Example of humility, example of obedience. And Lord, I pray that that would become a reality in our own lives. It's easy, Father, to walk away from that, to forget how much you have forgiven us, to forget how much you have done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look to you and your example of what you've done and how you put us first instead of your own desires and wants. And Lord, in turn, I pray that we would do the same. Lord, now as we come to your table, I pray that we would remember the cross, that we would live in light of the cross, and in doing so that we would proclaim your death until you come. So Lord, I pray that this would be a time of reflection, a time that would be God-honoring to you for all that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.